You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. If you've got a Bible and you haven't turned there already, I'd encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, last week we started our series in Genesis, which we're doing part 1, which is chapters 1 through 11. And if you weren't here last week, just quick summary, a couple sentences. Uh, God created the world. And God is extremely creative in how he made it and all the, the wonder and the beauty for our good and flourishing, but also for his glory. And so that his name would be lifted high by, by all of creation. And now we come to uh, Genesis chapter 2, which if you read it, it feels like it's just a repeat of chapter 1, but maybe it's like a completely different story. And some people have kind of um, looked at this and thought, well, this narrative can't be right because chapter 1 says all this kind of stuff, and then chapter 2, it seems like it's in a whole different order. It's talking about different things. And let me just reassure you, it's the same story, okay? It's the same story, but it's told from different perspectives and for different reasons. So last week was mostly about what God has made, but even more than the what that God has made, it's who has made this? What was on display last week was God, and God has made this. And now when we come to chapter 2, we see again that God has made something. There is definitely a what there. But now we're discovering, like, why is it that this exists? And so this morning as we look at the text, we're going to look at three major blocks. It's kind of like if you remember the game uh, Jenga. Has anybody played Jenga before, right? You take a block out and you put it on top. And the whole idea is that you're trying to not have this mountain, not mountain, this tower of blocks fall down because then you lose. That's the point of the game. If you've tried to do the opposite, you're the loser of the game, okay? The goal is to build it up. And so you want the foundation to be there. That's the point. And so when we come to Genesis chapter 2 now, God is revealing to us some really important foundational blocks. This isn't even just like the little Jenga game. This, there's a larger version of Jenga, like a mammoth version. These are big block pieces that help us as mankind understand how God has made the world to be. And they give us a solid foundation for human flourishing in this world. So in the text this morning, we're going to look at three big blocks. Understanding how has God made these things to be. Now, I'll be honest, it's, it's almost 10 o'clock already. Each of these blocks could be their own sermon. Okay, so I'm not doing them justice. We're just going to like tackle it and see what the text says and kind of move on, even though I know it's going to leave you with more questions. So we're going to look at human identity, we're going to look at marriage, and we're going to look at work. Three massive blocks in the foundation of our understanding and of human flourishing in this world. So the first block is identity. And it begins in chapter 1, verse 27. We read this uh, and studied this last week, but verse 27 of chapter 1 says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then if we jump to chapter 2, our text this week, it says this, 
Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Then down to verse 20. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to man. So in Genesis 1, we saw that God made wonderful things in the universe and in this world. But now we see that God in his creation of man is giving us a more extended explanation, like a deeper knowledge of what he's actually doing. So even though space and the universe is wonderful and glorious and it causes us to like sing hallelujah to God, it is not the same as what God is doing here with man. Even though last week, remember, we talked about the platypus. The platypus is an amazing animal. Horses are wonderful. Dogs, cats, they're all good, okay? You might hate some of them, but they're all wonderfully made. But there is something unique and different about mankind. We even, for the most part, universally understand this on the planet. No matter where you go, it's, it's generally understood. I don't know if you remember this, but in uh, 2016, at the Cincinnati Zoo, a little toddler fell into the gorilla cage. So in falls this little toddler into a cage with a male silverback gorilla, 440 Pound gorilla. And there's video of this massive gorilla holding this little toddler, and everybody is like, What is going to happen? I mean, this is a very powerful, majestic animal that could like snap any one of us in half in like a second, let alone a little toddler. And so, what they ended up doing after like great deliberations is they actually ended up shooting the silverback gorilla. This animal that like is majestic, right? Have you ever seen a gorilla? I've seen one in person before. They are intimidating. They're wonderful. It's amazing. And this was an animal that brought in like thousands of visitors to the zoo, millions of dollars, and yet they shot it for the safety of the child. And here's what most of humanity universally recognizes. Nobody was thinking in their head, what if we just shoot the little boy? Nobody was thinking that. The, the only discussion they were having was, should we shoot the silverback gorilla or not? Because we know universally, most of the world knows this. Now, sin kind of has corrupted our view of things, but most of the world would recognize the child is of a different kind of value than the animal. And so here when we come to the text, this is on display for us that there is a difference between mankind and the animal kingdom, that God has actually done something unique when he came to create man and woman. But even more than that distinction between animals and people, the text here is giving us some understanding of human identity. Now remember, last week I said that Genesis here was written by Moses and he was 
writing this to the nation of Israel as they were coming out of slavery. So they were under bondage. They were used for their work in the land of Egypt, and now they're coming out. And one of the things Moses wants to establish in their minds is, this is your identity. This is who you are. A people that were used essentially like animals to do work, to do the work of slavery. And now Moses is saying, this is your identity. This is actually what your creator has made when he made you. And he wants to redefine for them their identity. And for many of us as well, our identity has been shaped by so many other things. It might be uh, what we're good at. You know, we are able to do these things. We can perform these tasks. It might be the way that we look. It might be the position that we're Whatever it is, something has given us identity. And now Genesis is saying, this is actually the root and the foundation of your identity. And it points out a couple things. The first is this, that we are formed by God. We are formed by God. So in this creative act, when Adam is created and when Eve is created, there's two different words that are used. One, when it's, when it's Eve that's being made, it's, it's, uh, the word is, is like to build, like to build a house essentially. So putting something together. And when Adam is built, the word is to be formed. It's, it's like a, a potter. It's like an artist. So both these words together mean that God has actually created us with great intention. Like an artist who is making a piece of art, or like a builder who is building like a home or some sort of piece of furniture, God is with great intention creating man and woman. This is no accident. This is no random kind of afterthought in creation. This is no just accident. God is in very intentionally creating man and woman. And so then we see on the planet here, we see with our very eyes, the creative power again of God in creating people. All kinds of variety of people. Tall people, short people, people with red hair, with brown hair, with black hair. All different types of skin tones and different variety. There's all this variety and all of it, all peoples, are made in God's image. This is not something that gets marred later by sin. This is a pillar. This is a block that is part of the foundation. It identifies us as people. So as Christians, those who have the word of God, we have the greatest foundation actually for care and love to our fellow human. Because we recognize and know that they've all been made in God's image. But not only that, not only were we formed by God, this, this artist, but it says that we were given the very breath of life from God. God is the one who gave breath. We sang about it in the one song this morning, and we read about it in our text. I have three kids, so I was three times there for the birth of each of the kids, okay? I won't go into all kinds of details about that. Liz is like, please stop, okay? But I was there for each of those. Three is enough for me. I've seen enough, okay? But here's the deal. There's a moment there where the child is 
completely relying on its mother for everything connected to life. And then suddenly, you're waiting. Everybody in the room is waiting for this first breath. Have you been there before? This first breath. And usually it's followed by a cry or, or some sort of noise, right? And you're like, this miracle has just happened. A new life has come. Breath is being taken in. And here in Genesis, God says that first breath in Adam, in Eve, that first breath was from God. God breathed life into mankind. Our origin, the life that we have, comes from God. It's held by him. It's created by him. It's a wonderful thing that our life is not an accident. Our life is not an afterthought. It comes from God. It is deeply personal. Derek Kidner writes this in his book on Genesis. He writes, Breathed is warmly personal with the face-to-face -face intimacy of a kiss and the significance that this was an act of giving as well as making and self-giving at that. This is, this is what God is doing in creation when he creates mankind. He gives us breath. He is deeply personal. He is, is interested in all of life, but is particularly invested in the, the life of mankind, those who would worship him and those who would be in relationship with him. So our identity, listen church, our identity is connected to our creator. God looks down on us in, in personal love towards his creation, to people who he has made in his image. And to, to have that spoken to you can be life-changing. If your identity was based on something else, to know that God is actually looking at you as his beautiful creation. The other month I saw a, a video of these soldiers. They were sitting down to be interviewed one by one. And they didn't know what the interview was going to be about. So they kind of set up cameras. And they're, they're looking like really stern and serious because they're soldiers. You know, it's both men and women. They're just ready to go. What's this interview going to be about? And in the, the people who were interviewing them, they were just going to tell them that you know, you're just like beautiful, you're very photogenic. They just wanted to like shower praise on them. So they did that. They sat him down one at a time, and they're like, hey, we're just filming, and we just think you're wonderful. You're, you're just a beautiful human being. You're photogenic. What do you think happened in that moment? To every single one of them, to the guys, to the ladies, all of them, they first of all, they just like start beaming with a smile, they start laughing, and they start saying, oh, thank you. And they're just like, you know, some of them are getting red in the face almost. They're just like almost embarrassed by such a statement. But they're in that moment, on this little video, what you have captured for them is they're just overwhelmed by the sense of someone just thinks I'm beautiful. Someone just thinks I'm lovely. I'm not basing my identity off that. They've just told me that. And so here in Genesis, God is telling us, you are beautifully made, every single one of you. God has made you with care, with love. He has given you life. That's part of your identity. It is a foundational block in understanding your existence on this planet and how you are to live and to go forward. And so 
Genesis says, you were made in the image of God. So the way that you see yourself should be how God sees you. And the way you interact with others in this world should also be informed by how God sees them. It shapes, actually, the choices that we make as we interact. But then the text goes on, and it goes on to the second block, which is the block of marriage. And I've had the amazing privilege to actually do some weddings, so I kind of get the best seat in the house. I don't know if, you, if anybody else has done a wedding before you would understand this. You know, you're there as the minister. Usually I'm sitting in a spot like right here, okay, and everybody's watching from there. I get to see it all. I get to see the bride come up. I'm here next to the groomsmen and everything, you know, whether it goes well or not. I just see it all, okay? And then you get to officiate this thing, and it's just wonderful, and you see everybody leave. This is the best seat in the house, okay? But you just don't want to mess anything up if you're here. That's all you got to know. But in this text, in Genesis 2, God is the one who officiates the first wedding. God is the one who's sitting in this spot right here. He's the one doing it. So let's read these verses again just as a reminder. In chapter 2, verse 18, it says this, Then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Verse 20. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed, it up, it closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So here we have, in Genesis chapter 2, the origin of marriage, of God's design for marriage. And God is the one who is officiating this first ceremony. Now, listen, the rest of the Bible gives us a lot more teaching on all the details of marriage and, you know, how to interact with one another Right here in the text, it doesn't give us a lot of details. It doesn't say, do these 10 things for a successful marriage. It doesn't do, you know, do this or that. It doesn't go into all those details. It just gives us the foundational understanding of God has actually done something here in bringing these two people together in a unique kind of relationship that we call marriage. So we see here in the text that it's, God is the one who has actually designed marriage. God is the one who has given marriage to societies to flourish and to grow. So marriage is God's idea. These two different people, a man and a woman, coming together, being bound together, made into one flesh. This is actually how God has planned it to be. And even when we come to the New Testament, 
When Jesus is out there, Jesus is challenged at one point in Matthew related to divorce. They're kind of wondering. They're, the Pharisees are thinking about like the, all, the other details about how to break apart a marriage. And what does Jesus do in that moment? He actually gives kind of a foundational teaching which echoes Genesis' teaching. So in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus says this. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So when Jesus wants to kind of clarify marriage, and kind of like almost, almost in some ways avoids their questions, he repeats the Genesis block for us, this foundation, that firstly God made it so that a man and a woman would come together, that they would be different. Yes, they'd be different in gender, but they would also be just very different in their personality, in the type of person that they are, that God would bring these two people together, and they would be brought into what we say now into holy matrimony, right? That they would be brought together, that a man and a woman would be brought together, and they would become one flesh, united together. And that the one who would actually be doing that joining, you see that at the end of verse 6? The one that actually would bring them together is God. God would be the one who would be joining them together. So there would be um, a minister that would be there. There would be witnesses that would be there. All that kind of stuff exists. But what's actually going on behind the scenes, Jesus says, and Genesis says, is that God is bringing these two people together. God is doing the uniting. So marriage is God's idea. This coming together is a wonderful union, two people being made into one, but also this would be something that would be a, a covenant. This would be a bringing together with a deep commitment. So a few weeks ago, um, someone showed me a, a scene from a movie, Pride and Prejudice. Have you seen this movie? I've never seen the movie, okay? Probably a lot of you have seen it. It's a very popular um, Main characters, Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth, right? And so, so she showed me this scene where Mr. Darcy is coming. Okay, I haven't seen the movie, so I might have the context wrong here, okay? But Mr. Darcy's coming to kind of confirm that there's, like, love happening here. So if you've seen the movie, you totally know how this looks, okay? He's walking across a field, and he's got, like, a, a trench coat on almost. So he's walking, and it's flowing in the wind. You can hear the music, right, in the background. And the scene is, like, overdrawn and long, okay? He's just, like, walking and walking and walking. It's just a building, okay? I'm getting some looks like, no, it's not. It's the <laughs> perfect length of time, okay? So he's walking, and this was why the person was showing me the video. So he's walking up, and then he comes to... Kira Knightley, I think that's Miss Elizabeth, I'm not sure, but comes up to her and he's like, what are your intentions? You know, do you, do you love me or not? And, and this is the line. I wrote it down because I'm like, I'm not going to remember this. <laughs> you have bewitched me, body and soul. You know that line, don't you, if you've seen the movie. <laughs> and then he says, and I love you. 
It's a romance movie, right? It is a movie that just gets you. And that's what that scene is for. It's, it's meant to just get you. And romance is, is wonderful. And I hope that every marriage is filled with it, okay? If you don't have a lot of it, just do more romance. It's wonderful. But here's what the scriptures are reminding us. Is that what marriage is actually based on is covenant love. Covenant love. So when the romance slips out the back door for be it five minutes, five days, or maybe five weeks, and yes, it needs to come back in, the marriage in Genesis is to be built on covenant love, commitment. It's a different kind of relationship than possibly any other kind. It's, remember, it's two people coming together, becoming one flesh in their commitment to each other and to God. It is a covenantal relationship. C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity. People get from books the idea that if you are married to the right person, you may expect to go on being in love forever. As a result, when they find that they are not, they think this proves they have made a mistake or are entitled to a change, not realizing that when they have changed, the glamour will, pre will presently go out of the new love just as it went out of the old one. So Lewis is saying, listen, if you're only basing your commitment to each other on romantic love, there's going to be days where it's just not there. And what the Genesis narrative is reminding us is that it never was meant to be based on that. It is meant to be based on covenant love for each other, which I hope is filled with all kinds of romance and love. So Genesis says the personal identity of people is extremely important, knowing that we are created and made in God's image. The Family, which is going to be based on marriage love, is also going to be of extreme importance. And we have to understand it in its right context and in its right design and way. Otherwise, our tower will be wobbling or at worst it will fall down. And lastly, we come to the third block here, which is on a, like on a societal level, also on a personal level. And that is the block of work. Again, starting in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, we read this last week. It says this, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then in chapter 2, verse 15, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And a little bit later in the text, we see that he brings Eve into that picture as well, so that together they are working and they are practicing this work in the garden. So the first thing we see here is that work is part of God's design. Work is not the result of the fall. Now we'll talk next week how all of these blocks are slightly marred and cracked by the fall. We are deeply impacted by it. But here we see before sin even enters into the equation, that God gives to Adam and Eve the gift of work. That it's going to be part of something they do. Even in that setting where God creates Eden and he makes this place, which 
I believe was a literal place on the planet, probably in the Middle East somewhere, where Eden was made, and God puts them in there, and now he says, part of your work, Adam and Eve, is to take care of this place right here, is to do the work of cultivating this garden. And so what does it mean then to fill and to subdue and to have dominion? Tim Keller puts it this way, human beings filling the earth means something far more than plants and animals filling the earth. It means civilization, not just procreation. So filling and subduing the earth is not just, you know, having families and children. It's definitely a part of that. But Keller is saying there's more to it than that. It's actually creating cities. It's, it's doing all kinds of creative work. It is by design entering into the very thing that God himself has done in creation. God was super creative making all these things. He's doing all this work. And now he builds into our very own design this very same capacity to work. So we've been made to work. But not only that, we've been made so that work is actually a good. Work is something that is good for us. It's healthy for us. Now, you might not be thinking that, you know, when you're out there shoveling the heavy snow like you were yesterday, but work is actually given to us as a good. It is a unique aspect of our creation. Derek Kidner again says, only man is set apart and given a job description or an office. So the animals aren't told to do that. They're not told to subdue this or that. They're not told to kind of till the garden. They just exist. They just do what they do. But humans, people, have been uniquely made by God to work. And that work is actually a good thing for us. Anytime we deviate from God's plan for for us, especially in relation to work, the scriptures try their best to get us back in line with what God has designed. So when we walk away, we try to figure out our own thing. The scriptures, the teaching is get back in line with how God has actually made it to be. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is actually mostly addressing this issue of work. Because these believers, they kind of thought like Christ's return is imminent, so we're just going to kind of chill till Jesus is here. And a lot of them stopped working. So here's what Paul says to them. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Verse 9 says, It was not because we did not have the right, but to give you in ourselves as an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you are walking in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So Paul is saying, man, we're hearing that some of you are not working. You're just idle. And what, what is Paul saying? You are, you're living actually outside of God's design for you. 
God has made you to work. So Paul says, Paul's, Paul's pretty harsh here. He's like, like, get in line or don't associate with them. Because Paul says that's how serious this is for you to live within the vision of God's design for your life. Jesus himself in John chapter 4 verse 34 says this, My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. So from the example of Jesus and from the teaching of Paul and from the original teaching in Genesis, we are encouraged to work. It is for our good. But that may not have been the hard lesson for us. I, looking out here, I doubt that that's actually an issue for many here. Many love work. Maybe this last point here is the harder one. And that is that work actually has limits. There's limits to the work that we can do. In Genesis chapter 2, in the beginning, we didn't read it, the first few verses, God actually gives to mankind Sabbath. Sabbath rest. A day that it says in the text that God made holy. He actually sets it apart. And he says, on that day, you're to practice Sabbath rest. A day where you experience what it's like to not be in control, not be productive, not to do more, but to rest. That all that you've done is finished, is behind you. And now the Sabbath is to rest in the work of God, to rest the body, to prepare for another round of six days of doing the good work that God has for us. Rest is maybe the most difficult for you. In uh, Japan, there is a word called karoshi, which literally means death by overwork. And what they discovered in that society was in the 70s and 80s especially, there were people that were just maximizing work, just work, work, work. And in the 90s, a professor did a study, and he kind of came up with this view here, this understanding of working yourself completely to death. So much so now that they have, you know, they have kind of warnings around this in Japan. They kind of, when they see it coming, they help people out because they realize that this is an issue. Well, the World Health Organization did a study in 2016, and they found that in that year, almost three-quarters of a million people died from overwork, from just constantly working till ultimately either their heart stopped or their body gave out or they committed suicide. Overworked. Just working, working, working. So God knows that we have a propensity to make ourselves God. And just to keep going, keep going. So he gives to humanity Sabbath. A day of rest. Something that God himself practices, though he doesn't need to. A day to rest and to reflect on all that God has done, all that God is doing. All that happens when you don't work, that the world keeps spinning around when you don't work. God says this is a gift to you, and it's a part of actually understanding work and its place in your life. So let me ask you, how solid are these blocks in your mind, in your heart, in your life practice, your identity as one who is made in the image of God? 
marriage as a foundation for family and the society and work, this massive part of your life. How is your understanding? Now, you may hear this teaching and you may hear this text read and you think, I don't like that. I don't like Genesis 2's design for this. Or maybe you're thinking, I don't believe it. Or maybe you're like, I think I got this. I can do this. You know, tomorrow's the day. Today I'm going to Sabbath, check, done. And tomorrow I'm going to live out of my identity. I'm just going to live the da da da. I don't know where you're coming at this vision for you. But when Jesus comes onto the scene, he says, This is the kingdom of God come into your life now. Jesus himself. And he says, the vision for your life from Genesis to Christ to today is all hinged on Jesus Christ himself. And what he says in Matthew chapter 11, and Preston was alluding to this in his leading us in worship, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus actually repeats this vision and he says, Lord, I thank you that this vision is actually so simple. And it's this, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What we discover in Jesus is that actually everything comes together in him. Whether you think you can do these things or not, whether you're in the midst of success or failure, Jesus says, everything actually comes together in me. And when we follow his vision for our lives, it's actually a light yoke. It's a rest. Because we're following Christ. It's his life that empowers us to live. It's him that actually brings us in line and these blocks, they come in line, not because we figured them out, not because we understand the text better, but because Christ himself has made it reside in our hearts and in our minds, and it becomes true as his life becomes truer in our own lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this vision. Thank you, God, for showing us what life can look like, how you've made life to be. And Lord, I thank you that we are not just moralists here, Lord. We're not just teaching new rules for people to do. But we're actually pointing to the one who can do these things in us, which is Christ Jesus himself. And it's, that's, that's why we sing these songs. That's why we pray to Jesus. That's why we glorify him. Because all these things are only possible through him. And so, God, this morning, I pray for anyone who's here who's maybe struggling with these teachings or who's rejoicing in them, may they be reminded again of your significance and your sufficiency in all areas of life. It's in Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen.